understanding the F-word, American Fascism and the Politics of Illusion, authored by David McGowan, published by Writers Club Press, narrated by Graham Dunlop, audio editing by Darren Grimes, Understanding the F-Word, American Fascism and the Politics of Illusion, written by David McGowan, narrated by Graham Dunlop from the Grimerica Show podcast. For my parents, siblings, progeny, and various other members of the McGowan and Griffith families, and as always, for Gretchen. Epigraph And it seems to me perfectly in the cards that there will be within the next generation or so a pharmacological method of making people love their servitude and producing a kind of painless concentration camp for entire societies so that people will in fact have their liberties taken away from them, but will rather enjoy it because they will be distracted from any desire to rebel by propaganda, brainwashing, or brainwashing enhanced by pharmacological methods. Aldous Huxley, 1959 Through clever and constant application of propaganda, people can be made to see paradise as hell and also the other way around, to consider the most wretched sort of life as paradise. Adolf Hitler, 1935 Part 1. Understanding the F-Word Fascism denies that the majority, by the simple fact that it is a majority, can direct human society. It denies that numbers alone can govern by means of a periodic consultation, and it affirms the immutable, beneficial, and fruitful inequality of mankind, which can never be permanently leveled through the mere operation of a mechanical process such as universal suffrage. Benito Mussolini, 1932 Chapter 1 Who are you calling a fascist? We stand for the maintenance of private property. We shall protect free enterprise as the most expedient, or rather the sole possible of economic order. Adolf Hitler The current political system in place in the United States at the dawn of the 21st century is fascism. Of course, we don't like to call it that. We like to call it democracy. Nonetheless, it looks an awful lot like fascism, though to understand how this is so requires an awareness of what fascism actually is. It is a system that we, as a nation, have long had a fascination with. It has been the preferred means of governing in the U.S.-controlled Third World satellites for decades. Of course, we don't call it fascism there either, whether in Southeast Asia, Latin America, or elsewhere. We call it anti-communism, or even Western-style democracy, but never the F-word. We don't like to use the F-word at all. It tends to conjure up unpleasant images. Our perceptions of fascism are shaped both by the very real horrors of the Holocaust and by the fictional worlds created by writers with British and American intelligence connections like Aldous Huxley and George Orwell. 
These are the images that our schools and our media provide for us. So when we think of fascism, we think of concentration camps filled with corpses and horribly decimated walking skeletons. We think of a stiflingly regimented society in which Big Brother watches our every move. We think of brutal pogroms by jackbooted thugs and violent repression of dissenting views. These images are so far removed from the world that we live in that we cannot conceive that our system of governance could have the remotest resemblance to that which was in place in Nazi Germany. The problem is that fascism, viewed from the inside through a veil of propaganda, rarely looks the same as it does when viewed from the outside, with the benefit of historical hindsight. To most of those living in Germany during the reign of the Third Reich, fascism didn't look the way that we think it is supposed to look either. To many, in fact, it looked like a pretty damn good system. Of course, Jews living in the ghettos of Warsaw had a much different view of German fascism, just as African Americans living in America's inner cities have a much different view of American fascism. That is why, at the end of the war, when the whole world looked in horror at the German people and asked how this could be, they just replied they didn't know. And though many denied knowledge of Nazi brutality to avoid prosecution for war crimes, there were undoubtedly a good many people who could honestly claim that they didn't know. Nevertheless, a world shocked and repulsed by the extreme depravity of a fascist state run amok would not accept as an answer that we just didn't know. This answer was unacceptable because there was no way to reconcile the horrific images with the people's pleas of ignorance. We could not accept that a regime so fundamentally criminal and corrupt would not have revealed itself to its people as being so. We would not accept, and still will not, that the fascist state does not represent to its people the face that we have been taught to recognize. One mistake we make is in equating fascism with the Holocaust. The Holocaust represented one extreme manifestation of European fascism, but did not, in and of itself, define what fascism is. Despite the fact that our education on the subject tends to encourage the belief that this was indeed the event that defined the Third Reich, the indoctrinated belief that fascism is synonymous with the Holocaust deliberately confuses the issue of what exactly fascism is. So too, the highly stylized versions presented in works such as 1984 and Brave New World. These books, and others like them, have created an unrealistic consensus view of what the authoritarian state looks like, and by doing so has given us a false sense of security. We think we know what fascism looks like, and we therefore think we are safe from it. Never would we allow the Holocaust to take place on our own shores, nor the creation of a regimented, controlled, dystopian society. But to truly protect ourselves from the evils of fascism, we need to look beyond our preconceived notions of what the F-word actually means. We need to recognize that these extreme examples of police state excesses obscure our view of what fascism actually is about who the system serves and about how and why it is maintained. 
we need to recognize that the face of fascism need not be the personification of evil. The first step towards understanding what we are as a nation, though not as a people, and what we stand for is to clearly define exactly what fascism is. To do so, I can think of no better authority to turn to than the Webster's New World Dictionary, apparently the self-proclaimed wordsmiths of the New World Order, which offers the following definition. Fascism. A system of government characterized by rigid one-party dictatorship, forcible suppression of opposition, private economic enterprise under centralized government control, belligerent nationalism, racism, and militarism, etc. It should be readily apparent that some aspects of this definition, most notably the notion of private economic enterprise, bear an uncomfortable similarity to the American democratic system. Luckily, though, the people at Webster's realize that changing times sometimes require changing definitions. In truth, the definition above is not the current one offered by Webster's, but is taken from an ancient 1980 edition of the New World Dictionary, hardly relevant to today's modern world. A more recent variation, taken from the 1990 edition, shows that a not-so-subtle change has occurred in the definition of, if not the practice of, fascism. Fascism a system of government characterized by dictatorship, belligerent nationalism and racism, militarism, etc. Gone now is that whole unpleasantness about private economic enterprise that might have perhaps struck a little too close to home. So we can all sleep well knowing that even as our country creeps ever closer to overt fascism, Webster's will thoughtfully rewrite the dictionary so that we may maintain a comfortable distance between ourselves and the dreaded F-word. Now, some may argue that this tendency to rewrite the dictionary, to rewrite history, if you will, is in and of itself indicative of fascism. While a perfectly reasonable argument, a much better case can be made that America is indeed a fascist state, by comparing actual conditions in the U.S. today with Webster's authoritative definition. Chapter 2. Fascism Deconstructed Fascism is a dictatorship from the extreme right, or to put it a little more closely into our local idiom, a government which is run by a small group of large industrialists and financial lords. I'm going to ask Latitude to insist that we might have fascism even though we maintain the pretense of democratic machinery. The mere presence of a Supreme Court, a House of Representatives, a Senate, and a President would not be sufficient protection against the utter centralization of power in the hands of a few men who might hold no office at all. Even in the case of Hitler, many shrewd observers feel that he is no more than a front man and that his power is derived from the large munitions, and steel barons of Germany. Syndicated columnist Haywood Brun, 1936. To begin, we will need to break the definition down into its component parts. I should note here that we will be using the earlier and more complete definition. 
on the assumption that fascism as a concept hasn't really changed much in the past 20 years. We begin then with the notion that, according to the good people at Webster's, fascism is a system of government characterized by, number one, rigid one-party dictatorship, number two, forcible suppression of opposition, number three, private economic enterprise under centralized government control, number four, belligerent nationalism, number five, racism, number six, militarism. As the first two components are the most debatable and require the longest explanations, we shall skip these for now and move first to the more obvious manifestations of fascism currently on display in America, beginning with component number three, private economic enterprise under centralized government control. This certainly sounds like an accurate capsule description of the U.S. economic model, otherwise known as the Western democratic model, as it apparently did to the people at Webster's. It is, at any rate, an accurate description of how we, as loyal Americans, are supposed to believe that the system works. In theory, at least, there is supposed to be a centralized control over private enterprise. To enforce such concepts as fair labor standards, environmental protections, and antitrust legislation. In truth, however, the heads of corporate America are also its heads of state, and are essentially regulating themselves, or, more accurately, failing to do so. But the point is, that the way the system is supposed to work is for private enterprise to be under federal regulation. The federal government is supposed to rein in monopoly corporate power and guarantee that workers and the environment get a fair shake, in addition to setting monetary policy. The way the fascist state actually works, however, is for the centralized government to be under the control of private economic enterprise. This is as true today in America as it was in fascist Italy and Germany. So this aspect of the definition is clearly applicable to the U.S. political economic system. We can then move on to the next component, belligerent nationalism. When I think of belligerent nationalism, I think back to early 1991, a time when it was not possible to drive even a few blocks to the local video store without passing a stream of American flags and yellow ribbons flapping in the wind. A time when one couldn't turn on the television without seeing a mob of people in a field somewhere creating a giant human American flag. I think of the pompous theme music and Desert Storm miniseries style graphics on CNN and the relentless braying of military and government hacks as they barely contain their exuberance while discussing sorties, air supremacy, and smart bombs. I think of a nation so inflated with its own sense of self-importance and self-righteousness that it openly cheered each airing of sanitized video footage of bombing attacks on largely defenseless civilian targets. And then I think that while America was busy patting itself on the back and beating its chest, the conditions were being created that would result in the deaths of nearly as many 2 million Iraqis, over 60% of them children under the age of 10. That's over a million children, for anyone who's counting. And not one of them had anything to do with the planning or execution or the annexation of Kuwait. 
nor were any of them involved in the building of any weapons of mass destruction or the oppression of the Kurdish people of Iraq. But they're all dead now, just the same. And then I think back to December of 1998 and recall how the press whipped the people into a frenzy by literally demanding the further mass bombing of Iraq. Saddam had not learned his lesson, we were told, and needed a further show of America's resolve to enforce humanitarian standards and the rule of law. And so a nation that had just a decade before been the most socially advanced in the Middle East, with the highest literacy rate and the best schools, the best health care and quality of life, and the most advanced civilian infrastructure, and which now was reduced to abject poverty and rampant disease, would once again be bombed. Once again, toxic agents such as depleted uranium would be rained down indiscriminately. And once again, chemical sites on the ground would be targeted, poisoning the land and the air, threatening food and water supplies, and killing the hopes and dreams of the Iraqi people that their children wouldn't be joining their friends and classmates who had already perished. And sadly, once again, the American people would cheer. That, my friends, is what you would call belligerent nationalism. A considerably more benign example of this phenomena is the practice of sending a bunch of arrogant professional basketball players dubbed the Dream Team to, say, the Olympic Games, and then swelling with patriotic pride when they then predictably thrash their opponents, signaling to the world that America reigns supreme. Yet another example could be, for instance, using a lost, bewildered, and traumatized six-year-old Cuban boy as a political football to demonstrate our superiority to a rogue state, all of which seems to suggest that we have the belligerent nationalism thing pretty well nailed down. We're now two for two and ready to examine the next component, racism. This one seems like pretty much a slam dunk. The 500-year-in-the-making genocide of Native Americans and the enslavement of African Americans for nearly the first century of the country's existence would seem to suggest that America has built a solid historical foundation as one of the most racist nations on earth. The fact that even after the slaves were emancipated, black Americans were not granted their civil rights for another entire century, and even then only after violent uprisings, would tend to bolster that conclusion. But is America an overtly racist society even today? Unfortunately, the facts would tend to indicate that this is indeed the case. For example, there is an enormous gap in the incarceration rates for white and black Americans with African Americans being at least six times more likely to be under the physical control of the state. And Hispanics fare a little better in the U.S. criminal justice system. The standard conservative response to this indisputable fact is that ethnic minorities are just far more likely to commit crimes. They, in fact, constitute a criminal element in society. This is, however a convenient justification that purposefully ignores how the system actually functions. The truth is that the incidence of reported crime in this country does not vary widely by race. It has been reported, for instance, that while African Americans constitute just 12% of the U.S. population, 
and a nearly identical percentage of the illegal drug-using population, 13%, a full 74% of those people in prison for drug possession are black. The discrepancy by race and the rates of punitive measures taken by the state is actually a product of a system of criminal justice that is largely a discretionary system, with many actors wielding the power to determine how a case will ultimately be disposed of, and with the race of the accused playing a key role throughout the process. For instance, the first point of contact for most Americans with the justice system is generally with the police, who have a range of options for penalizing an offender. The cop can choose, among other options, to issue a warning, issue a citation, or to make an arrest. Conventional wisdom to the contrary, which of these options is chosen is frequently not dependent on the severity of the offense, but by the characteristics of the suspect that are unrelated to the crime, notably his or her race. Once taken into custody, if the officer on the street opts to make an arrest, other law enforcement officers have the option of booking the offender or merely detaining him or her. A prosecutor then has the discretionary power to decide which charges, if any, to file against the accused. And the same prosecutor further has the authority to lessen those charges in exchange for a guilty plea from the defendant. Further on in the process, if the accused is found to be guilty, the prosecutor and or the judge has the discretion to determine the sentence ranging from a fine or community service to prison time or even death. While this is a simplified view of the machinations of the American criminal justice system, the point is that there are several steps along the way where the law is superseded by the discretionary power of various actors. And at each of the steps along the way, African Americans and other minority defendants fare far worse than do white criminal suspects. Blacks are far more likely to be arrested, given the same circumstances of the crime, than are whites. Once arrested, blacks are much more likely to be charged with serious crimes than are whites. And of course, blacks are more likely to be convicted in court and to receive a harsher sentence upon conviction. It is not uncommon, in fact, for a black youth to be processed completely through the system and receive prison time for an offense which a white youth would have been let off the hook with a warning or a citation. And continuing with this pattern, African Americans are much more likely to be de denied parole or have strict conditions placed upon their parole. Such is the racist nature of the American criminal justice system. Yet this is not the only manifestation of racism in America today. There is also the fact that Native Americans remain the most oppressed and victimized ethnic group in the U.S. today, with by far the lowest living standards and the highest rates of victimization by crime, as well as incarceration, rates even higher than that of black males. There is also the uncomfortable fact that the, during the Reagan administration, not too many years ago, Top aides, including Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, drafted contingency plans that included the mass internment of black Americans in concentration camps. This was, of course, at the very same time that cheap crack cocaine entering the country with the complicity of the CIA was systematically devastating inner-city neighborhoods. Add this to the fact that during those same 1980s, the United States consistently voted 
in defiance of world opinion and any sense of decency, against all attempts to impose sanctions on the apartheid regime in South Africa. And it begins to look like this isn't exactly an era of racial enlightenment in America. Then there is the issue of immigrant bashing, long a favorite pastime in California, particularly under the governments of Pete Wilson. Of course, there are other manifestations of racism as well, perhaps most notably the precipitous rise in the number of hate groups being spawned across the country. But suffice it to say that with available evidence strongly suggests that America is still firmly committed to the racist principles on which it was founded. If there's any lingering doubt of that, one only has to look at the composition of the U.S. Senate and the White House team at any given time, or at the rosters of the Forbes or the Fortune 500 list. It's readily apparent, and by doing so, that unless your name is Oprah Winfrey or Colin Powell, America's corridors of power are still pretty much a whites-only club. So it seems fairly safe to say that we can check racism off that list and move on to the component number six, militarism. This one is an absolute no-brainer, given that the U.S. is without question the most heavily militarized nation ever to take up residence on planet Earth. The United States currently spends more on what we euphemistically term defense, in fact, than the rest of the U.N. Security Council combined. And that's just with what we openly acknowledge as military spending. This does not include, for example, much of the CIA's unaccountable black budget, variously estimated to be between 50 and 100 billion annually, a huge portion of which is used for covert military operations. Nor does it include the funding of civilian entities such as NASA, which masquerade as non-military agencies when in fact they are an integral part of the military intelligence infrastructure of this country. Also not included is the funding for the arming and training of foreign forces, which often masquerades as non-military. Humanitarian assistance. This assistance, it should be noted, is rarely, if ever, offered for the benefit of the host country but rather to extend the reach of the U.S. military, primarily for the benefit of an increasingly small sector of corporate America. When all of what actually constitutes military spending is tallied up, the truth is that America very likely spends more on defense than the entire rest of the world combined. By doing so, we long achieved absolute naval superiority over the world's oceans. We also maintain the ability to establish air superiority anywhere in the world at any time we should so choose. And of course, we have for decades had unquestioned nuclear superiority. Yet even all of this is not enough. Now our military leaders desire to have absolute military superiority in space. Policing the world with an interlinked system of satellites encompassing the globe able to strike without warning anywhere in the world. And just in case that proves an inadequate level of military control, other explicitly stated or implied goals include controlling the planet's weather and food supply for military purposes. America has become increasingly militarized in another way as well, alarmingly so in the last decade as the line has steadily been blurred between 
the military and civilian police agencies. This domestic militarization is perhaps even more ominous than is the militarization of foreign policy, which has arguably always been based primarily on brute force. It has become increasingly difficult to discern any difference between the training, the weaponry, and the tactics employed by the nation's domestic police forces and its military services. Police now routinely patrol America's streets, particularly in the euphemistically termed inner cities, in military-style helicopters and armored personnel carriers, brandishing military-issued automatic weapons, as well as the occasional grenade launcher and a host of other military surplus equipment. Paramilitary police squads, or SWAT units, originally a creation of the Los Angeles Police Department, are now an integral part of nearly every police agency in the country. Perhaps to up the ante just a bit, that same LAPD has now given an even more militarized and brutal model to the country, the infamously corrupt crash units. A parallel trend in recent years has been the increasingly close coordination between federal, state, and law enforcement bodies, all in the name of fighting terrorism on America's shores. The end result, which does not appear to be too far in the distance, is the creation of a unified and highly militarized national police force. It's safe to say that when we can check militarism off the list, we've now confirmed four of the original six components of fascism with just two more to go. We're already two-thirds of the way there. But now we must return to the two more debatable factors that we conveniently skipped over initially. Those factors, for those who have forgotten, are the notions of a one-party dictatorship and a forcible suppression of opposition. And here, you may believe, is where the argument that America is a fascist state falls apart. For surely America is not a one-party state, let alone a dictatorship, nor do we forcibly suppress opposition. These facts are plainly evident to any observer of the American ship of state. But do these seemingly self-evident facts represent an objective reality, or a carefully crafted and maintained illusion? Put forth another way, is the existence of various competing political parties and ideologies merely an elaborate hoax that has successfully pulled the wool over America's eyes? Chapter 3. The One-Party State? The commercial press, in another of its brazen, hypocritical proclamations, points with pride to the fact that it is free because it upholds a free system in which there are two political parties. But there is probably not one member of the ANPA, American Newspaper Publishers Association, who does not know that the Republican and Democratic parties both feed out of the same bag provided by the moneyed system, and that the same persons frequently subscribe funds to both major parties. They know this very well, and they also know very well that the press has never given honest news coverage to the formation, platform, and campaign of any third party, which was independent enough not to feed on the same money. George Seldes, 1943. First of all, we all know that America is not a one-party state. It's a two-party state. Or maybe three, if you count Ross Perot's Reform Party, though precisely what it is about the current system that they intended to reform is not exactly clear. 
what should be abundantly clear to any rational-minded American by this time is that there is absolutely no substantive difference between the two major political parties in this country. This has been noted with increasing frequency by various writers who have dubbed the emerging one-size-fits-all party the Republicrats. It is my belief, in fact, that the Republican and Democratic parties do not actually exist. And the notion that the U.S. federal government operates as some sort of give-and-take between the Democrat-slash-liberal agenda and the Republican-slash-conservative agenda is pure fantasy. This is not to suggest that among the people in this nation who consider themselves Democrats or Republicans, there are no legitimate differences of opinion. Most certainly there are. But I am suggesting that at the highest levels of government, where the agenda-setting power lies, there is no such thing as a Democratic agenda and a Republican agenda. There is only the agenda. And the only debate is over how rapidly that agenda can be implemented while still maintaining the illusion of democracy. And make no mistake about it, maintaining the illusion is of paramount importance. That is why it is essential that prominent men with virtually identical ideologies must pretend to be political rivals and to deeply despise one another. The bitter bipartisanship that ripples through Washington on a regular basis assures us that differing viewpoints are being heard, and that at least some of those in Washington represent our point of view. Indeed, were it not for the relentless attacks upon Bill Clinton by the rabid right-wingers that have dogged him since taking office, how would we even know that Clinton was a liberal? You would certainly be hard-pressed to ascertain that fact from the record of his administration. Oh, sure, he fooled us at first. We all saw how hip he was blowing his sacks on Arsenio's late-night show and dancing to Fleetwood Mac at his inauguration. We all heard him deny that he had inhaled, though of course we all knew that he had. And we all heard about how he had protested the Vietnam War, on foreign soil, no less. Hell, this guy was so liberal, he was practically guilty of treason. And we had hope in the early days of his administration as he set about as though he was going to reform health care and address the issues of gays in the military. But then a funny thing happened. After faltering on both of those issues, the Clinton administration quickly set about implementing the most reactionary agenda of any president in modern history. In fact, Clinton had instituted reforms that remained mere wet dreams for his Republican predecessors including the decimation of the welfare system. He had done more to militarize the nation's police forces than any president in history. By the time he leaves office, the number of Americans incarcerated will have nearly doubled during his time in office. The use of the death penalty has skyrocketed during his tenure, with its use expanded to cover more crimes and with appeals of death penalty cases severely limited. His time in office has also seen the country increasingly execute juvenile offenders and increasingly incarcerate minors as adults. Privatization of prisons, a movement that was just taking baby steps under the Reagan and Bush administrations, had flourished under Clinton. So too had the use of inmate labor by private corporations as a form as ersatz slave labor. The vast majority of Nazi Germany's concentration camps were, by the way, privately owned slave labor camps. Auschwitz, for example, was constructed by I.G. Farben, 
and its business partner Standard Oil to provide a steady source of disposable labor. The sale of arms to foreign regimes, already at a high level during the Bush administration, doubled in Clinton's first year in office alone. And the militarization of foreign policy has far surpassed what the belligerent Bush team was able to achieve. In one seven-month period, the Clinton White House conducted aerial bombing and or cruise missile assaults against no fewer than four sovereign nations, Iraq, Serbia, Afghanistan, and Sudan. All of these were conducted in a rather flagrant disregard for international law. Clinton has also, aside from conducting a full-scale war of his own in Yugoslavia, continued George Bush's punitive war against Iraq. By the time he leaves office, well over a million Iraqis will have died on his watch, considerably more than were killed in the initial air war by his predecessor. In Haiti and Somalia, Clinton has shown a willingness, an eagerness even, to use military force. He has also presided over an unprecedented erosion of the judicial system and a vast undermining of privacy rights. Social spending has become almost non-existent, and the Dow Jones has become the only relevant economic indicator. Clinton has also been an unapologetic backer of globalization. Whether it's NAFTA or GATT or the WTO, this administration has never met a free trade bill or organization it didn't like. Wealth has been concentrated during Clinton's tenure on a scale never before seen in history as the gap between rich and poor widens with each passing week. As for the enforcement of antitrust legislation, forget it. The show trial of Microsoft notwithstanding, this administration has allowed the biggest mergers in history, with each year continuing to set new records, most recently with the joining of Time Warner and AOL. Environmental protections? None to be seen. Labor standards and protections? Not likely. The truth about the record of this administration is that any Republican on earth would be delighted to leave office with such a legacy. Clinton has, without a doubt, been the best friend in Washington that the conservatives could ever have hoped for, which brings up the obvious question on why so many of them have such an apparent disdain for the man. The first answer which came to mind when pondering this question was that they were just jealous of Bill for being a better Republican than they are. And then, as if suddenly struck by a divine insight, it came to me. I now know the answer to the question of why the conservatives in Washington hate Bill Clinton. The answer is that there is no answer to that question because it's not a valid question, due to the fact that it is based on a false premise. For the dirty little secret that is the right-wingers don't hate Bill Clinton, they love the guy, and why shouldn't they? He has, after all, pursued their agenda and done so with nary a whimper of protest from the American left. But why then, the question is begged, has the Republican right done everything in its power to discredit, embarrass, and bring about the early demise of this administration? Because, strange as it may initially sound, that is precisely why Clinton has been so successful in pursuing such a reactionary agenda. The truth of the matter is that without the constant broadsides launched at the White House, Clinton would have long ago ceased to pass for anything remotely resembling a liberal. Those on the political left who initially supported the new administration would have quickly abandoned the course it chose to follow. 
The only reason that Clinton has held the support of these factions, as well as of more mainstream Democrats for that matter, is precisely because of the constant attacks. After all, the reasoning goes, if he is so thoroughly despised by the most intolerant right-wing extremists on Capitol Hill, then surely he must be a liberal. At the very least, one is left to conclude he is of the lesser of two evils, and any enemy of those guys must surely be an ally of mine. And so this president has held the support of centrists and leftists alike, even as he has waged acts of war around the world, gutted domestic spending, given no more than lip service to social issues, and facilitated the rise of the prosecutorial police state. Even those who seriously question the policies of Clinton have surmised that things have only, could only be worse with a Republican in the White House. This may well be a false notion. The truth could very well be that we have fared considerably worse with a Democrat, for it is precisely because Clinton is perceived as such that he has succeeded in areas which his Republican predecessors had failed. A Republican president, for instance, would not have been able to destroy the welfare state without invoking the wrath of the American people. Neither would he be able to routinely wage acts of war seemingly on a whim. Lefties are instinctively on alert for such shenanigans by Republican presidents. But when a liberal embarks on such missions, we tend to give him the benefit of the doubt, even when that liberal is actually a conservative Republican. In retrospect, we should have known something was amiss right away. A rather odd but seemingly trivial aspect of the 1992 presidential campaign that brought Clinton to power should have signaled to the people that something wasn't quite right about the American political landscape. The event referred to actually occurred after the close of the campaign, when the bright lights were mostly turned away. That was when Clinton's campaign manager, James Carville, and Bush's campaign manager, Mary Madeline, who had just conducted a no-holes-barred, anything-goes, win-at-all-costs, mud-fest, decided to cap off the campaign by getting married. <laughs> Nothing unusual about that, right? We all know that opposites attract, even when those opposites have just devoted a considerable amount of energy to, by appearances anyway, completely destroying the reputations and careers of the other's candidate and campaign team, even when those opposites are allegedly fiercely opposed to the other's ideology and have absolute no respect for the integrity of the other's mission. It does seem just a bit odd, however, that two opposites would even have the opportunity to attract one another in the course of such a vicious campaign. How is it even possible that they could have interacted on a level that would have fostered a personal, let alone intimate, relationship? Unless, that is the adversarial nature of this particular campaign and of political campaigns in general was largely an illusion. A sham foisted on the people to foster the perception that the American political system is based on deep divisions between competing political parties and ideologies. This is precisely why nearly all political campaigns for major office in this country quickly degenerate into mudslinging contests. In truth, this is the only way that the illusion of diversity can be maintained. The real issues are rarely discussed because, quite frankly, there is nothing to discuss. All of the major party candidates are in agreement on all the issues of any real significance. 
They cannot differentiate between themselves and create the illusion of a meaningful choice to voters by discussing issues on which they all agree. And so they agree to disagree on a few largely inconsequential issues and throw up a smokescreen of salacious allegations. In this way, it is hoped, the voting public will be deceived into believing that they are being offered a legitimate choice between competing ideologies. For surely there must be marked differences between these men, or why else would they hate each other so? The truth is that they hate one another only in the sense that professional wrestlers hate their rivals. I hate to be the one to pull the curtain back on the wizard, but it's all for show. When the lights go up and the curtain drops down, they're all friends again. In the case of the aforementioned 1992 election contest between George Bush and Bill Clinton, for example, abundant evidence has been presented by researchers that suggest that the two bitter rivals had a rather cozy relationship extending back to Clinton's days as a governor of Arkansas. It seems that the good governor was considerate enough to allow his state to be used as a base for George and Ollie's illegal contra operations. From an airfield in Mena, Arkansas, weapons were flown out of the country and drugs were flown back in. This, of course, required the full knowledge and protection of the governor's office, especially when the contra team began flying recruits and training in a covert training camp. These types of operations tend to involve a lot of cash and this one was no exception. Some of this naturally found its way into the hands of the governor. Luckily, the Rose Law Firm, where his wife and good friends Webb Hubble and Vince Foster happened to work, was very good at laundering these types of soiled profits. But Bill Clinton earned more than just some extra cash from his complicity in this sordid affair. More importantly, he also gained important connections to George Bush and his inner circle and very likely earned the right to pose as the Democratic candidate in the 1992 election. Bill Clinton's role in that election campaign, essentially, was as an insurance policy for the Bush camp. Clinton was propped up as the Democratic alternative to Bush in the event that the electorate sought a more liberal alternative to the then-current administration. In reality, the choice faced by voters in the 1992 election was between the real George Bush and the George Bush surrogate named Bill Clinton. The only change in the agenda seems to have been an acceleration in the erosion of the democratic rights under the cover of a liberal administration. I'm not suggesting here, mind you, that the 1992 election was unusual in the sense that there was something that set it apart from other presidential elections, or from most gubernatorial and congressional elections, for that matter. I'm actually suggesting that they're all pretty much of a sham. That's why it shouldn't have surprised anyone to see President Clinton following his 2000 State of the Union address, walking arm-in-arm with former Klansman Strom Thurmond, and glad-handled some of the most openly fascistic elements of the U.S. government, men who had just the year before been all but calling for his public execution. And it also shouldn't surprise anyone when the losers in any given primary campaign predictably endorse and embrace the candidacy of the party frontrunner. Even when those same losers have previously denounced their party rival as the spawn of Satan. They all know that it's just a game and that all will be forgiven. Of course, the press will feign amazement over how quickly the bitter divisions have been mended, but they too know how the game is played. 
They just don't want to spoil the fun for the rest of us. So they play along and try to paint as stark a contrast between the opposing candidates as they can. Chapter 4. Bringing Out the Big Guns The best way to safeguard a secret is to pretend to share it with others. Maxim of longtime CIA Director Alan W. Dulles One of the clearest indications of the fraudulent nature of election campaigns in this country is the fact that the big guns, so to speak, are routinely withheld. In other words, while there is undoubtedly a torrent of mud tossed back and forth, the really good mud, clods, you know, the ones with rocks inside, are never thrown. In the case of the previously discussed 1992 election, the reason for that is pretty clear. All the best mud, the mud that could really do some damage, i.e. the Contra mud, tended to soil both the Democratic and Republican contenders for president. Neither campaign could expose the other's role without implicating themselves. But that is not always the case. There are a number of examples of candidates that could have been shot down, but the knockout punch never surfaced. Of course, sometimes it does surface, as was the case with the Dukakis campaign and the Willie Horton issue, or the Gary Hart campaign in the Donna Rice episode. But this fate seems to befall mostly those candidates who are unqualified to occupy the White House anyway, in that they don't fully understand the rules of the game. It also befalls those candidates who, though aware of the rules of play, nevertheless stand in the way of the preordained winner. If such a candidate proves to be too popular, he will need to be replaced by someone who actually makes the chosen one look good. Relatively speaking. This is not the case with a candidate such as George W. Bush, though. George is a chip off the old block, a good team player, and by all appearances, the chosen successor to the throne. That is why it is very unlikely that any cruise missile mud clods will be fired his way. This is, mind you, despite the fact that George W. has a Willie Horton in his closet that would put Michael Dukakis to shame. Or maybe you hadn't heard about George's act of compassionate conservatism. It seems that the governor took some unusual actions in June of 1998 that have yet to be aired. But first, a little background on Bush's term as governor. As of this writing, Texas's smirking governor has cleared the way for 150 executions of convicted inmates. That is more, it should be noted, than any governor in any state in the history of the nation. That's not a bad record for being in office for less than six years. And he still has more time to kill, pardon the pun, as governor. Now this does not likely register as a negative with Bush's conservative base. They love a guy who is tough on crime. It's not even a negative that some of those executed were mentally impaired and or mentally ill. Nor that some of them had credible claims of innocence. Nor even that two of them were women of only five women executed in the entire country in the last quarter century. Most of Bush's core constituents would likewise not be bothered by the fact that some of those executed were convicted of crimes committed as minors. It's good to be tough on crime. When Bill Clinton was running for president, he made a point of running home to Arkansas to sign off the execution of Ricky Ray Rector, a man so severely retarded that when the guards had to interrupt his last meal to lead him to his execution, he reportedly assured them that he would just have to finish when they got back. And it was good that Clinton did that. One can never be too tough on crime, 
even when one is a liberal Democrat. That is why it is so unusual that Governor Bush, with his first national election looming, did what he did. For you see, George Jr. doesn't have a perfect score on his execution record. While 150 executions have been carried out in the state of Texas under his watch, 151 cases have come before the governor for review. Only one of them was deemed worthy of clemency. Bush has issues with only one stay of execution as well, in order for the case to be reviewed. Following the review, the inmate, Ricky Nolan McGinn, was executed. The rather obvious question begged here is, who was the recipient of Governor Bush's compassionate conservatism? A good first guess might be Betty Lou Beats, the great-grandmother in her 60s who was convicted of killing her husband after years of violent physical abuse. That, alas, would be a wrong guess. She was walked down the aisle and strapped onto the table on February 24th of 2000. The correct answer is, drumroll please, Henry Lee Lucas. Henry is, for the uninformed, the most prolific and arguably the most brutal serial killer in the annals of crime. If his confessions and the accounts of various law enforcement personnel are to be believed, Henry and his sometime cohort Otis Toole are responsible for between 300 and 600 serial slayings. And these were not, mind you, your garden-variety killings. Henry is a necrophile and torture aficionado, while his partner was a confessed arsonist and cannibal. Their victims were frequently tortured, sexually abused before and after death, mutilated and dismembered, cannibalized, beheaded, and subjected to any other depraved urges the pair that could conjure up. There was an even darker aspect to many of their crimes. Just for kicks, Henry and Otis liked to bring along Tool's niece and nephew on their killing sprees. The two youngsters, aged just 10 and 11, when their forced collaboration began, were forced to witness and sometimes participate in the torture, killing, and mutilation of victims. So if one were to play the devil's advocate in favor of the death penalty, it would be pretty difficult to find a better poster boy for the justness of judicial executions. If ever there were a man for whom the ultimate punishment was intended, Henry would have to be it. If his confessed death toll is accurate, Henry is responsible for wrecking more death and misery on the nation than the other 150 convicts sent to the execution chamber by Governor Bush combined, even assuming that they were all actually guilty of the crimes for which they were convicted. More deaths also than Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Richard Ramirez, Charles Manson, and a few other of America's celebrity serial killers combined, which makes it very unusual that Henry's life was spared by America's premier hanging governor. Even more unusual, but only if one accepts that political campaigns are legitimate contests between rivals, is the fact that no one has bothered to mention this whole affair. It's not hard to imagine the damage to Bush's core support that this story could cause. Any one of Bush's Republican primary opponents could have attacked him on the issue. And yet, they all remain silent. Steve Forbes, Orrin Hatch, Alan Keyes, Gary Bauer, and others whose names I have already forgotten chose not to wield this sword. Even John McCain, allegedly locked in a bitter struggle for the support of the party faithful, chose not to play the Henry Lee card. 
there's virtually no chance that Gore will choose to do so in the general election campaign. But had I been given just one week running the campaign of any of Bush's rivals, Democrat or Republican, George would have been out of the race guaranteed. I can already picture the Willie Horton-style campaign ads saturating the country. As the announcer solemnly recounts how Governor Bush made a special request to Texas's Board of Pardons to review Henry's case and then proceed to commute Henry's death sentence, a roll call of Henry's victims scrolls endlessly across the screen. Then they are for all the voters to see, and the shattered lives, young and old, men and women, and children, hundreds of them, flashing across the screen. And then at the end, a shot of Henry sitting comfortably in his cell. Maybe we could even coax him into uttering a thanks, Governor, for the camera. As soon as someone sends me the money, I'll start filming the spot. None of this is meant to suggest that I think the state of Texas should have killed Henry Lee Lucas, nor do I think this is a good idea to run political campaign spots advocating bloodlust. Rather, the Henry Lee Lucas story is told here to illustrate what appears to be full-scale political warfare is in reality very selective and tightly controlled mudslinging, and to highlight the ridiculously arbitrary nature of the application of the death penalty. Some issues are clearly off-limits, and Henry, it would appear, is one of them. It should be noted here that it is not just Bush's political rivals that have avoided turning Henry Lee Lucas into this year's Willie Horton. The press has completely ignored the story as well, though this is hardly surprising. Well, you may be thinking, that's an interesting little story, but is it enough to derail the candidacy of George Jr.? Not to worry, I have a backup plan. Should the Henry Lee story fail to generate an adequate amount of outrage among the voters, there is always the possibility of excavating some old mud on a particularly unsavory aspect of the Bush family history. Since all is fair in a down-and-dirty election campaign, I see no reason why we shouldn't hold George accountable for the sins of his fathers. To do so, we need to look back to the year 1942, admittedly before the current Bush family candidate was even born. But that's okay. Guilt by association is a valid part of any good mudslinging campaign. 1942 was, as many readers will recall, the year that America made its belated entrance into World War II. The U.S. actually declared war in December of 1941, but it was well into 1942 before American troops joined the fighting, primarily at first in the Pacific Theater of Operations. It would not be until June of 1944, two and a half years later, that the U.S. would muster any serious resistance to the Nazi menace in Europe, even though we entered the war with a stated policy of Europe first. But we'll have to get back to that later. The ostensible reason for our entry into the war, it will be remembered, was the attack on Pearl Harbor of December 7th, 1941. Strangely enough, this attack came the morning after a massive counterattack was launched by the Red Army to repel the hordes of Nazi troops running amok through much of the western half of the Soviet Union. Prior to this counteroffensive, it was widely assumed that the Germans would soundly defeat the Soviet forces, and the Americans didn't much care. They didn't really want to get involved, just as they didn't want to get involved as the German troops had plowed through Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Belgium, France, Holland, Greece, 
and Norway as they set about creating a continuous 1,800-mile front on which to attack the Soviet Union. With the launching of the Soviet counteroffensive, however, America was suddenly taking a keen interest in the affairs of its European neighbors. It suddenly became apparent that the Red Army, unlike most of those previously encountered by the Axis forces, was actually going to fight back, and most likely, ultimately defeat the German army. And if that were to happen, our Russian allies might even decide to roll on through Western Europe, doing a more thorough job of denazifying the region than some Westerners had in mind. So it was a good thing that the Japanese launched such a timely attack on Pearl Harbor, giving the U.S. the necessary pretext for jumping into the fray. But we'll have to get back to that later as well. The point is that by 1942, America was in a fully declared state of war with Japan and the European Axis powers. And it was in that same year that the United States Alien Property Custodian, acting under the authority of the Trading with the Enemy Act, seized the assets of several subsidiaries of the Wall Street powerhouse of Brown Brothers Harriman. These subsidiaries included the Union Banking Co. and the Hamburg America Shipping Line, were declared to be operating as Nazi fronts, which is exactly what they do appear to have been. The problem here for the current presidential candidate is that two of the principals of Brown Brothers were none other than Prescott Bush and Herbert Walker, along with Avril Harriman. That would be the father and grandfather of former President George Bush and the grandfather and great-grandfather of future President George W. Bush. This was not, by any means, the only group of bankers and industrialists who were actively trading with and financing the fascist powers of Europe. But it does raise rather serious questions as to the source of the Bush's family's considerable wealth. Even so, it is an issue that has not and will not be raised in the current presidential campaign, just as it was not an issue that was raised in any of George Sr.'s runs for political office. Neither was it an issue that prevented Prescott Bush from becoming one of the most influential senators in the country, and an advisor to President Eisenhower. That's because politicians and media outlets who understand how the game is played don't raise such troubling issues. In the unlikely event that these two issues would fail to crush young George's political aspirations, there is yet a third skeleton in the Bush closet that could do some serious damage, not just to George W., but to George H.W. as well, but we're saving that for Chapter 6. To summarize then what has become a rather long and rambling diatribe, there are no actual major political parties in this country, a fact greatly elaborated on in Part 2 of this book. And election campaigns consist largely of a bunch of guys in expensive suits pretending to be bitter rivals when they are actually all playing on the same team. That, in a nutshell, is how the American political system works. All of this may sound just a little bit implausible to many readers. How then, you may well ask, are we to explain the impeachment of our beloved liberal president? An excellent question and one that will require a new chapter to examine. Chapter 5. Impeachment or Prelude to War The size of a lie is a definite factor in causing it to be believed, because the vast masses of a nation are in the depths of their hearts more easily deceived than they are consciously and intentionally bad. The primitive simplicity of their minds renders them more easily victims of a big lie 
than a small one, because they themselves often tell little lies, but would be ashamed to tell big ones. Such a form of lying would never enter their heads. They would never credit others with the possibility of such great impudence as to complete reversal of facts. Adolf Hitler, 1923 If ever there was an event that demonstrated the deep divisions between the liberals and the conservatives on Capitol Hill, then surely it was the impeachment of President Clinton. Certainly this event disproved the ludicrous notion that there are no competing political parties or ideologies in this country, or did it? There are generally two points of view among the people in this country on the impeachment fiasco. One is that it was a legitimate and lawful effort to rid the country of a thoroughly corrupt head of state whose liberal values had brought shame and disgrace upon the White House and the nation. The other is that it was a totally unwarranted attack whose goal was to dispose a legally elected and popular president through whatever means were necessary to do so. I would suggest that neither interpretation is correct, though the latter point of view is an accurate description of what appeared to occur. But what appeared to occur is not necessarily what actually did occur. I would suggest that it is entirely plausible that the whole affair was a sham a carefully stage-managed event from start to finish. Preposterous, you say? For what possible purpose would such an elaborate event be concocted? Glad you asked. There are actually any number of reasons for putting on the Bill and Monica stage show. For one, the impeachment of Clinton more than any other single event established his unquestioned standing as a liberal. What other explanation could there be for such a vicious, lengthy, and unrelenting attack upon the beleaguered president by the likes of Trent Lott, Henry Hyde, Bob Barr, Tom DeLay, and Newt Gingrich? One possible explanation could be precisely to create the illusion of deep divisions between Republican and Democratic factions. After all, after five years of pursuing an increasingly reactionary agenda, there was a danger of Clinton's facade beginning to slip. Poor Bill's poll numbers were beginning to drop. This is not, of course, unusual for a second-term president, but was entirely unacceptable what with the U.S. having a war to wage just over the horizon. And a war, if waged overtly, requires a reasonable level of support from the American people in order to be waged successfully. And this war, in particular, had only the flimsiest of pretenses on which to sell it to the American people. So it required that the people be, in general terms, solidly behind their president prior to the commencement of hostilities, and also that the people be caught off guard, so to speak. If they accomplished nothing else, the impeachment proceedings marshaled forth an unprecedented level of support for a second-term president. Conventional wisdom, of course, tells us that this was precisely the opposite effect intended by his Republican pursuers. Yet at each step of the long and tedious process, Clinton's poll numbers continued to rise. When the infamous Star Report was posted on the internet, his numbers went up. When the videotape of his death position in the Paula Jones case were aired ad nauseum, his numbers went up again. When the House Judiciary Committee voted out articles of impeachment, his numbers continued to climb. When the full House voted out two of those same articles, his numbers went up again. By the time the proceedings reached the Senate, 
and that solemn body opted to hold limited hearings, Clinton's poll numbers were reaching up for the stratosphere. It just seemed that the more pressure the right-wingers put on this beleaguered president, the more popular he became. And in retrospect, why shouldn't this be so? Despite the best efforts of the press and the Republicans to express consternation at their lack of ability to turn public opinion against the president, the truth is that any reasonable sane person couldn't help but support the president during his ordeal. The case against him was, after all, built on the flimsiest of legal pretenses. In the final analysis, the entire case for removing Clinton from office was based on his having lied about receiving a blowjob, for God's sakes. And the entire case was built by running roughshod over the Constitution, a fact of which most Americans were innately aware. It's really not surprising, then, that most of the leftists and centrists rallied to support of the president. It's not even surprising that a good number of Republicans were steamrolled into supporting Clinton by the time the spectacle had reached its climax, so to speak. It's also not surprising, as a side note, that the Republican Party did not, and does not, worry about repercussions for their actions from the American people at the voting booth. They are not in the least bit worried about losing control of the House and Senate. Not because it's not likely to happen, but because it doesn't matter if it does happen. Nothing is going to change, regardless of the relative mix of Democrats and Republicans. The rhetoric surrounding the various policies being implemented may change, and which aspects of the agenda are being pushed may vary somewhat, but the agenda as a whole remains the same. There may be some advantage to the state in achieving or maintaining a Republican majority, as it allows Congress to claim a mandate from the people to more openly implement a fascistic agenda. But the point here is that the impeachment was enormously successful in forcing the vast majority of Americans into fiercely supporting a president. And what did the administration proceed to do immediately after the impeachment came to a close with this unprecedented newfound popularity? Why launch an unprovoked war on the nation of Serbia, of course? This decidedly non-humanitarian military venture could have expected to meet with every vocal opposition from the American left under ordinary circumstances. These were no ordinary circumstances, however. For well over a year leading up to the dropping of the first cluster bombs, the people had been herded like cattle into the president's corner. We had expressed our collective wish that our president not be taken away from us. And throughout the entire sordid ordeal, we had the ever-present poll numbers to assure us that the majority of the country was on our side. Why, if you could stomach watching the cable news network's 24-hour Monica-thons, you could particularly track on an hourly basis the mood of the country concerning the impeachment through its myriad twists and turns. Now flush with success from having successfully beat back the forces of the far right, we were suddenly blindsided by the outbreak of war. And what were we to do? And what did the rest of the country think about this development? Alas, there was no way to tell. Suddenly all the pollsters had disappeared, and there was nary a poll result to be found. After an entire year of non-stop polling, the pollsters apparently needed a break. So we were left alone to ponder what our fellow Americans felt about this foray into aerial warfare. And we couldn't very well abandon our president at that point, could we? He was still weak from his ordeal and needed our continued support. 
And so it came to pass that the air war over Yugoslavia became known as a progressive war. The left, who really should have known better, continued to support the president. And the right-wingers, who have never met a war they didn't like, rather preposterously continued to pose as opponents of Clinton and his policies. This wasn't quite the last act in the play, however. There was still the matter of the congressional vote on the Arms Limitation Treaty that followed the War of Kosovo. The truth of the matter is that neither side of the congressional aisle had the slightest intention of passing this measure before the supposed divisions brought about by the impeachment. America's record on signing such agreements makes it abundantly clear that the non-passage of this initiative were part of a historical pattern. Not the result of residual ill will left over from the bitter impeachment battle. Nevertheless, the press dutifully reported to us that the measure had gone down to defeat as a direct result of the impeachment. It was, we were assured, a second vote on the impeachment articles. The press were well aware, even as they reported this, that it was a patently absurd notion. The animosities allegedly engendered by the impeachment were merely used as a convenient excuse for failing to pass an international treaty that never really had any chance of passing. It was just the latest act in the choreographed reality that compromises the American political system. Besides solidifying Clinton's support as a prelude to launching a war and allowing a scapegoat of Congress's failure to pass an important international arms agreement, there are yet other purposes served by the impeachment of Clinton. One of these, perhaps not readily apparent, is that the proceedings serve to exonerate him. I'm not referring here to the outcome of the vote on the impeachment articles in the Senate. This was a foregone conclusion. Even if one insists on retaining the belief that there are competing political parties in Washington, the midterm removal of Clinton would have made no sense. Doing so would have allowed Al Gore to assume the presidency and to then run as an incumbent president in the current election, greatly boosting his chances for victory. But on a much broader scale, the entire nature and scope of the impeachment proceedings left an overwhelmingly positive portrait of William Jefferson Clinton. Consider, if you will, the vast array of charges, rumors, and innuendos surrounding this administration from its inception. Besides the rather frivolous, though numerous, allegations of sexual infidelities, Clinton had been accused of everything from drug trafficking and money laundering to murder. There had been so many scandals hinted at during Clinton's first term that it was difficult to keep count. There was Whitewater, Filegate, Travelgate, and the Vince Foster case, among others. Although he was never explicitly cleared of any of these allegations, the implicit message was abundantly clear. After all, didn't the impeachment zealots send the most rabidly anti-Clinton Puritan that could find in search of any dirt on the president? And didn't he and his equally determined band of merry men spend countless thousands and hours and millions of dollars in their single-minded quest to find any evidence that could topple Mighty Bill? Didn't they comb through every aspect of Clinton's file both in Washington and Arkansas, bending and breaking the law as they see fit? Were they not so determined to bring their man down that they were willing to do absolutely anything for any scrap of evidence to advance their cause? And yet, in the final analysis, when everything was said and done, all they could find to hang on their prey was a charge of lying about a blowjob. 
They had looked under every rock, browbeat every witness, searched through every swamp in Arkansas, and the worst that they could say about this scandal-plagued president was that he had tried to cover up an extramarital affair. Well, hot damn, forget about the impeachment, let's roll out the red carpet and crown the guy king for life. We just found the most honest politician in America. It's no wonder then that the proceedings served to vastly increase the support of the president among the people. Gone forever were those bothersome rumors. No longer would any credibility be given to spurious allegations about Whitewater, Filegate, or Travelgate. Why, if Ken Starr couldn't find anything, there obviously is nothing to find. Case closed. If only that were true. Unfortunately, there is very definite evidence, as previously cited, to suggest that Clinton was indeed involved in drug trafficking. And there is every reason to believe that the Whitewater affair was indeed a money laundering scheme to clean up some of the drug profits from those operations. And there is absolutely no chance that Ken Starr was unaware of this evidence. But Bill has been cleared of any wrongdoing now. And so, not coincidentally, has his business partner George Bush, and by extension his son George Jr., also largely cleared by the proceedings, was an alleged co-conspirator in various scandals, Vice President Al Gore. It really wouldn't do to have any of this type of baggage being carried by the chosen sons of their respective parties. There is yet another purpose served by the staging such an elaborate spectacle, as was the Bill and Monica show. To understand what that purpose was, it is important to understand that the politics of illusion requires that any good politician must learn from the tradecraft of another type of performer, the stage magician. As any good magician will tell you, the essence of magic is distraction and misdirection. A secret to performing a trick, well, is to succeed in getting the audience to watch your right hand when the trick is actually being performed with the left. And so it is with the performance of politics. In this particular case, the at times lurid impeachment marathon was the magician's right hand, and we stared at it, mesmerized, as though we were watching the trial of a wealthy black man accused of murdering a white woman. And all the while, that old left hand was robbing us blind. Even as the press told us repeatedly that government was at a standstill until this matter was resolved, Go ahead and keep staring at the right hand. You're not missing anything. Congress was indeed hard at work outside of the media spotlights, drafting and passing legislation that has dramatically more impact on your life than does the president's sex life. Really. One final note on the subject of that impeachment, and a sobering one at that. The proceedings could have had another hidden purpose as well. The entire process could possibly have been intended as a test Attest exactly how much undemocratic shenanigans the American people are willing to stomach before taking action. By action here, I mean something a little more profound than simply telling pollsters that they don't approve of the continuation of the proceedings. Something more along the lines of marching on Washington and demanding that the proceedings be halted and the undemocratic machinations exposed. Needless to say, if this was a test of that sort, we failed miserably. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. 
This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.